ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Sarah Dingle coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. After relentless record-setting temperatures, wildfires ripped through the Greek island of Rhodes this week. It's the result of two heat waves hitting southern Europe in quick succession this summer. They have no control of the fire. We need help, so anybody from outside hearing, send help. Our houses maybe not be there tomorrow, maybe now we're are on fire, we don't know what to do. I'm from here, from Rhodes. We are here the last six days to help uh, in every way we can, but it's very difficult. Uh, the wind is very high today, it will be worse. Wednesday, it's very, very bad, the situation. We need help. Send us help from everywhere. 19,000 people fled the popular holiday destination in the largest emergency evacuation the country's ever seen. The airport was just chaos. There were so many families who had spent the night there, so many tourists trying to get back home after fleeing flames, literally fleeing flames and trying to get onto safer ground. Azadeh Mashiri is a senior journalist with the BBC. She's in Rhodes, covering the emergency. Less than 10% of the hotels were affected, but there were still thousands of holidaymakers fleeing their resorts, fleeing their hotels, getting to the beach, seeing thousands of others there. And you suddenly have these scenes where thousands of people are desperately fighting and arguing with each other to get onto the evacuation boat. Hell on earth. Um, never thought I'd be caught up in something like that. There's, there's, someone's going to end up dying out there, seriously. There, there are thousands of people that are still out there. There's, there's young kids, there's elderly people. The island's on fire. They've got nowhere to go. You could see the fire, yeah. It was, it, it was, it was horrible, but obviously everyone was taking the tops off, using it as face coverings. It was just... It's hard to explain. You know, when you're in that kind of emergency and you've got your children with you, it's like, it's full panic. The fires are very localised. And so uh, parts of the island are still uh, untouched, which is really important to know because this island depends on tourism. But of course, for the areas that have been affected, it's heartbreaking. I went to one town yesterday that was evacuated and there was a man there in the town of Masari. And I asked him how he was and he said, well, Everything is almost working here in the village, but this doesn't. And he was pointing to his heart and he said, I'm sad. I'm sad for us, but I'm sad also for the tourists. And I'm very sad for the trees because he was pointing to the hills around the town. and It's just scorched earth now and he doesn't know when those trees are going to come back. What have people been saying about how the evacuations were handled by authorities? So everyone I've spoken to have been so grateful for the people of Rhodes, for the locals who've jumped in to help them. There are so many stories of kindness. When uh, one local saw I was a member of the press, he grabbed my shoulder and he didn't want to give an interview. He had tears in his eyes and he had a small child with him. He'd clearly, clearly been through a lot. 
And he just said, just tell them they're heroes. The people here are heroes because there are so many stories of locals giving people shelter, locals going back to areas that were devastated and finding documents, passports that holidaymakers need to get back home. So there was a lot of support from the people here. But of course, people have been very upset and very angry at airlines. That was the overwhelming message uh, when I went to the airport. It was just the fact that they got there and they felt like, uh, they were safe when they booked their flights because they booked them through tour companies, but that so many of them just weren't, were nowhere to be seen when they got to the airport. Now, eventually, a lot of airlines and tour operators sent more staff to Rhodes Airport, but people were so angry. One woman was telling me she was getting all her information from people back home, her friends and her family, and she was just outraged that that was the situation. Her exact words were, I am disgusted. I think, you know, there's such a mixture of gratitude, relief, but also genuine frustration. Mm. And Greece's Prime Minister has described the Mediterranean as a, a climate change hotspot. Is there fear amongst the locals that you've spoken to that these kinds of disasters are the new normal, that this will happen again and again? So much so. Time and time again, I had these conversations with the firemen, uh, with uh, people, shopkeepers, with locals in their villages, and they said, this is not normal. They, one woman said, it's just so hot and it lasts so long. That was the, that was the thing everyone repeated. It was lasting so long. In fact, we're in the middle of what could be the longest heat wave Greece has ever experienced in its recorded history. So it is definitely not normal. And scientists are telling us that it's going to continue to become more frequent and continue to become more severe because of climate change. And so that's why the Greek prime minister is using words like climate crisis, because that is genuinely what many of the people here are feeling. Azadeh Mashiri is a senior journalist with the BBC. There are also blazes burning across Europe and North America, while dozens of people have died in devastating forest fires across Algeria. On Friday, scientists said July was on track to be the hottest month ever recorded, prompting yet more warnings from the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Then there were warnings that the system known as AMOC, or AMOC, which drives the Gulf Stream ocean currents, could collapse as early as 2025. While south of the equator, scientists said that Antarctica's sea ice had failed to bounce back, as it normally does this winter. We've all been preparing for climate change as something that might happen in the future and then increasingly as something that will happen in the tropics. But now we've had our wake-up call. Gaia Vince is a freelance environmental journalist and author. You had Black Summer, you had the terrible floods following that. We are now experiencing that severe impact of climate change. Greece is on fire, Spain is on fire, Italy is on fire. We have uh, floods happening from Germany to uh, Italy. Canada has been on fire for months. 
it's extreme, it's severe, and we can no longer pretend that climate change is something that will happen in the future or to other people. It's happening right now to us. At the rate we're going, are there parts of the world, large parts, that will simply become uninhabitable? And are we already starting to see some of that? If we look at the climate models over the coming decades, we see that large swathes of the central band, the equator, become increasingly uninhabitable. Also coastlines, also rivers, river deltas, we're already seeing the nub of that and it's only going to increase. So what I call the four horsemen of the Anthropocene, fire, flood, heat and drought, they are the four drivers that really make life unendurable for people. Either they cannot grow agriculture or they're personally threatened by the conditions or their livelihoods are ruined. And so these are the things that drive people to move. And at the moment, we already see increasing uninhabitability. We see massive rise in human displacement. You know, last year we had in a week in Pakistan, 33 million people displaced by firstly uh, the extreme heat and then the floods that followed. And we're seeing these kind of cascading events where we have one extreme condition, which then combines and you get these feedbacks, which which make all of the others uh, much worse. So when you get extreme heat, it means that the ground dries out. So you also get drought. It means that there is a lot more moisture in the air because hot air can hold more moisture. And so then you get these downpours, which instead of being able to soak into the ground, the ground is too dry, so they wash off. And then you get the landslides, the erosion, the loss of fertile fields, all the harvests gone. And all of these combine to make people's community resilience, it wears down resilience. And so people have to move. And we are seeing that increasingly. At the moment, most climate migration, most climate uh, displacement occurs within nations. But now we're already on the edge of seeing this uh, much wider displacement. So instead of these events being sporadic and discrete and only taking place in certain parts of countries, they are going to take place across countries and across regions. How much of the damage can we still mitigate? Nothing is locked in. We have so many choices still. I mean, I do think that for coral reef ecosystems, certainly as um, I enjoyed in my childhood, they've largely gone. But everything else is very much on the table to play for. We really do have choices. Every degree that uh, the temperature rises, a billion people will be displaced. So every degree that we do not raise the temperature, that's a billion people that may not have to move. Every degree, every 0.1 of a degree is to play for. And we can still we can still mitigate. We can uh, decarbonize a lot faster. Climate migration is inevitable now. The degree and the scale of it is not. We can also massively increase the adaptation that we're doing. At the moment, I don't think any country is doing anywhere near enough adaptation to its own country, let alone supporting those much more uh, heavily impacted nations. The most impacted nations are the tropical nations, but that band of unlivability, it extends north as far as Spain and Italy and south all the way down to southern Africa, all through Asia, most of Australia, all the way down through South America to, you know, the edges of Patagonia. We are going to see really severe extreme events becoming much more frequent in this whole band that I've talked about. And there is nowhere that will escape the negative impacts of climate change. 
everywhere is going to have to adapt. Some places will find it easier to adapt because the impacts will be less relative to the tropics. And these are places in the northern hemisphere. They will have the resources to do that and they will become they will become hosts of people fleeing unsafe places. But absolutely, we have choices. We have choices about how we help people stay, how we help people move. So it's not a chaotic disaster in an emergency, but is a planned and managed migration. And we build a cleaner, fairer, productive world where people have hope and purpose. Gaia Vince is an environmental journalist. The Matildas will not waltz into the round of 16 tonight. It's all on their final match against Canada. The Matildas face the risk of being bundled out of a home World Cup after a shock loss to Nigeria. A momentous match in Brisbane finishes Australia 2, Nigeria 3. That's quite a blow in the biggest ever Women's World Cup. Nigeria win the second and they're in space here. It's goal! Nigeria lead! 32 teams are competing in Australia and New Zealand, eight of them making their debuts, while FIFA targets a global audience of two billion. But many of the teams are still fighting for fair pay, including this week's winners, Nigeria, whose football association may not pay them match bonuses distributed by FIFA. FIFA distributes the prize money to the national federations and then it is up to the federations to pass that on to the players. So for the Nigerians and, and many other players from other countries, there are concerns that they are not going to receive those funds. Amanda Shalala is an ABC Sports reporter. They have been at war, essentially, with the Nigerian Football Federation, protesting lack of support in the lead-up to the tournament, lack of funding, and there are other countries that have faced that as well. That's a lot to carry off-field when you're trying to play in a World Cup. And Nigeria's not the only team struggling. As you mentioned, so many of the teams in this World Cup are doing that. Who else? Can you give us a quick rundown? Jamaica is another one of the countries that have spoken out against their federation. They ended up having to use crowdfunding and fundraisers to be able to even get here. So that's quite extraordinary. Canada as well, one of the big countries, Olympic champions. So it's one thing when you think of some of the smaller nations who maybe haven't had the same investment in women's football or women's sport more broadly. But you look at a country like Canada and you would think, well, they're an amazing team. They always perform so well. Aren't things great for them? But not really. They're still currently in a dispute with Canada's soccer and they're saying they want pay equity. So it ranges from some of those smaller or less well-resourced countries to the big nations as well. It's not an easy road for many countries and for Australia as well. They've had their own struggles in getting to this point and they're in a good spot in terms of where they are with their revenue share between the Matildas and the Socceroos. But even for Australia, there is still a way to go. Well, it's not perfect, as you say, but it is, you know, the best on offer in the world at the moment. Can you give us a bit more detail on the terms of the pay deal for the Matildas? In 2019, the Matildas and the Socceroos and Football Australia came up with this landmark collective bargaining agreement where they said they would equally split 
all the revenue that they received. And then it was even things like travel, where the Socceroos used to go on business class, but the Matildas Mm. didn't. That got evened out. And they brought in a contract system for the women as well. So they would have tier one, tier two, and tier three players. And the tier one players were at the top it guaranteed that they would receive the same amount of money as the men's players. This has definitely not happened overnight. In 2015, the Matildas did something that no national side has ever done before in Australia. Tell me about it. This was a real turning point for Australian football generally. So the Matildas had come off the back of their World Cup campaign in Canada. Their contracts had come to an end. They were trying to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement. They had gone back to their clubs and they had real uncertainty over what was happening. The Federation then scheduled a friendly against the US, but the players refused to attend. They went on strike effectively saying, we will not do anything to do with Football Australia in terms of training or playing until we get this sorted out. We're not asking for millions of dollars. We're asking for minimum wage to sustain our lives off the pitch to do well on it. It's as simple as that. So at the heart of the dispute, it was about money and conditions, essentially. After a two-month strike, both parties finally came to an agreement and they got to that figure of around $40,000 as the maximum salary for a Matildas player, which when you think about it now doesn't seem like that much, but that was landmark at the time. Tell me what difference, so the, the landmark deal that they negotiated in 2019 to equally share revenue, what difference has that deal made in the years since? How is it changing the women's game in Australia? Well, it's changing it here and globally. It's had a ripple on effect as a ripple effect as well. So we've seen other countries follow suit like Norway, Wales, New Zealand. They have done a similar arrangement. And I think one of the biggest changes globally has been the professionalisation of women's leagues. So there has been greater investment in that domestic level all around the world, particularly in Europe with the rise of leagues like the Women's Super League in England, which is where most of the Matildas now play. Well, from the A-League to the World Cup and the bigger picture, this World Cup, the women have a prize money pool which is one quarter of the men's. Are there any signs of this changing? Is FIFA making any any moves? Yes, FIFA has made a commitment and a promise to improve this. So the overall prize pool for this year's event is $110 million. Last year for the men in Qatar, it was $440 million. It has more than tripled the women's prize money since 2019. And FIFA has said that by 2027, they want to have equal prize money. They're also guaranteeing that the players will each get at least $30,000. And that's more than double what a female footballer earns on average in a year. So these are all very significant things for the players and for these women's teams to have. With that light at the end of the tunnel, that 2027, there will be parity. So I guess it's up to FIFA keeping their promises and everyone keeping them accountable and making sure the players receive this money. As I said, that $30,000 FIFA is giving to the Federation, so $30,000 for each player, but then the Federation has to pass it on to the players and there's no guarantee that each Federation will do that. Amanda Shalala is an ABC sports reporter.
Israel passed the first in a series of laws aimed to limit the powers of its Supreme Court this week, plunging the country deeper into crisis. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have joined protests since the far-right coalition, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, put forward the plans for judicial reform nearly eight months ago. This week, the demonstrations intensified. Police fired water cannon at protesters outside Israel's parliament, the Knesset. I'm pretty scared. I'm a history teacher. Israel has been a democracy till now, but uh, we all know, all the people here know, that it's the, the beginning of the end. This is my country, and baby kidnapped our citizen, and it's not supposed to be. The new law curbs the Supreme Court's ability to overturn government decisions. Netanyahu's allies claim that the court has been too interventionist and needs reining in. But opponents say the reforms will undermine democracy and risk majoritarian rule. Israel is facing a profound identity crisis where people are fighting over what it means to be both a Jewish and a democratic state. And right now that's playing out in the democratic aspect. Carrie Kellerlin is a political and legal correspondent with the Times of Israel. There are people in this country who think that democratic means majoritarian politics and reducing court checks on political power. Uh, and there are people in this country who believe that democratic uh, ascribes to more of a liberal democratic view and are deeply worried about rule of law should the coalition's plan to reduce those court checks be fully enacted. Well, the first part of uh, that plan has passed the Knesset. What does that vote mean? So it's actually the most mild part. It's a part that says that the Supreme Court cannot um, exercise any scrutiny over the reasonableness of certain cabinet and minister decisions. Um, now, this is an important change because reasonableness is one of the prime ways that the court exercises um, any sort of review over appointments, over government's behavior during election seasons and, and other kind of niche areas. But what this really is, is a signal of the coalition's intention to keep legislating its judicial overhaul despite the large public outward. This is a country that's had hundreds of thousands of people. It's a country of only 9 million people. So you need to think like hundreds of thousands of people on the street is huge, uh, come out and say that they are not for these changes. And yet this slim coalition keeps pushing them. I don't know what to say. It's all corrupted, it's all criminals, and it doesn't look so good for the future. It's a sad day to the Israeli democracy. Uh, the slow uh, will enable this government to pass any law that they would like to uh, appoint any person uh, to a position. Uh, and we're going to fight back. And so Monday's bill is an indication that the coalition keeps planning to unilaterally push for major constitutional changes. So what's next and the agenda in this series of proposals to overhaul Israel's judiciary? The next is a rather major one. The next thing the coalition plans to do is to change the way that judges are appointed in Israel. Right now, it's a sort of idiosyncratic process that balances interests between professional and political representatives. Uh, the coalition hopes to shift this into politicians only um, or majority appointing judges, which is very significant because 
Israel doesn't have a constitution. It fundamentally only has two branches of government because the executive and the legislative emanate from the same place. And so the Supreme Court is the main check on political power. So these changes, uh, proposed and passed, have been really contentious. There's been seven straight months of mass protests in Israel. Why has Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu forged ahead with these changes despite the protests? Why are they so important to his government? Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has continued to push this, not because he himself deeply wants this overhaul, but because the political partners he must rely upon do. So Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was out of power for about a year and a half. And the only way that he could come back in December 2020 was to form an alliance with the far right and ultra-Orthodox parties. He's created Israel's most hardline coalition to date. And his political partners, they deeply want this reform. And so Netanyahu cannot not move forward with pieces of this reform and keep his government together. It should be said that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself is still facing charges of bribery, fraud and a breach of trust. Uh, This trial has been going on for years now. Do these changes mean that in the event of a conviction, he could, as Prime Minister, have that conviction overturned? So it's not a direct line between the two, but that's absolutely what critics of the reforms would allege. Um, Should the full complement of of, uh, reforms or overhaul be passed, then uh, Israel's governing coalition, presuming it's still under Netanyahu's control or one of his allies' control, would be able to pick the judges that hear his appeal, um, as well as pass any sort of law that would create immunity. So the full suite would give the Knesset ultimate control over law in the land of Israel. So Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition are determined to forge ahead. The protesters are still on the streets. Do you see any circuit breaker in this situation coming? Well, we're about to head into a three-month legislative recess. Uh, The Knesset goes on break at the end of July, and it will stay on break until mid-October. And so there's a hope that a lot of tensions will cool down during this period. Um, I would say it's a hope, but it's also a fear, let's say, of the protest movement against these reforms. They hope to keep the momentum going. So all options are open. There's a lot of talk about returning to compromise talks. Uh, You might remember that they occurred for about three months between um, April and June, and then they fell apart without any sort of tangible win. All an open question. Carrie Kellerlin is a political and legal correspondent with The Times of Israel. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Nell Whitehead, Marcus Hobbs, and me, Sarah Dingle. Catch you next time. <laughs>